This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm Will Summer. Welcome to the Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at the Daily Beast, and I'm currently working on a book about QAnon called Trust the Plan for HarperCollins coming out later this year. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at the Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Okay. Today on Fever Dreams, we have guest host and Daily Beast political reporter, Zach Patrizzo. Zach, I hear there's some things going down in Congress. What's going on? There sure are. This week, we, uh, you know, we, we've seen a lot of weird things going on. You know, we saw a guy chain himself to the Supreme Court. You know, a lot of weird things are happening in D.C., but something even weirder is happening in Marjorie Taylor Greene's office. She has enlisted a new intern. Milo is now an intern in her office. And, uh, of course, this is the former Breitbart editor who, you know, is since kind of taken a hard fall from right-wing stardom, if you will. He used to make his way around college campuses across the country, uh, and and now he's, you know, reduced to being an intern walking around with a Louis Vuitton uh, briefcase. 37-year-old intern. I believe they made a Robert De Niro movie about that. (laughs) It's interesting. I know when when the Daily Beast had reached out to Marjorie Taylor Greene's office for comment, of course, I, I gave Milo a call. I didn't hear back from him. They basically confirmed it. Right. So so this is Milo Yiannopoulos. I mean, this is someone who, you know, us true Gamergate heads going back, you know, have, have known <laughs> of his antics back since 2014 when he was this, you know, kind of this Gamergate figure. His claim to fame after that was, you know, I'm the Trump supporter, but I'm gay. You know, and so so a lot of these kind of hard right guys were like, well, we don't, you know, hate gay people. We we like Milo. We like his antics. <laughs> right. Essentially, th- this guy is like the ultimate kind of like attention hungry. Like he'll do anything for attention. He he stoops to he, you know. There's no level to which he won't stoop. But you know, he was a relatively prominent figure. You know, he had this Breitbart position, and then he kind of took a lot of lumps. And so one of them was, you know, I mean, he was at the point where he was going to be a big deal speaker at CPAC in 2017, and then this video emerged of him essentially defending pedophilia and saying you know well if a you know if a priest you know has sex with a kid maybe it's not so bad that's kind of part of the whole shebang and then when that video emerged CPAC understandably uh was like wait a minute maybe this guy shouldn't be our star <laughs> and then you know he had this video that was going to be a big deal and then ultimately you know it was one of the big five publishers was going to push it out and they backed off from it so and, and then he really kind of I would say finally got exiled when BuzzFeed did this big story about his ties with white supremacists Essentially, he had a whole bevy of interns who had access to his email account, and one of them leaked it to BuzzFeed. Uh, and it was just all these, like, I mean, really fantastic story uh, by Joe Bernstein even many years ago. Uh, but that was kind of the what we thought, at least, I think, would be the last of Milo um, hanging out with members of Congress. Uh, but that was not, that was before the era of people like Marjorie Taylor Greene being in Congress. And so Milo went down to Florida. He did this whole thing where he said, I'm not gay anymore. I'm an ex-gay guy. He had kind of like a lot of little like stints and various things. He had a lot of feuds with various right wingers. Uh, He had a lot of falling out. Uh, He claimed that he was going to make a, you know, an an anti-gay therapy place with all these like insinuations of like electroshock therapy. Needless to say, none of these things have come to fruition. But now he's on to his new thing, which is being an intern. And Zach, how did you originally, you know, sort of key on to this, that this was happening? As you know, there's there's a fellow kind of right winger named Lauren Witzke, who, of course, is this 
producer on Stu Peter's show. She kind of hangs out with Milo and is part of the fringe. And then also, of course, you have, you know, since Milo's fall from fame, he's kind of become hanging, you know, he started hanging out with all these kind of white nationalist groypers. So that's kind of Nick Fuentes' group and and those folks. He's been joking for a while that uh, him and Lauren Witzke are getting married and all this stuff. And, and, And clearly there was kind of some back and forth on Telegram. So when they were on Telegram, they were kind of joking around about coming into D.C. and all this stuff. And and that's when it started to really bubble up. And then, of course, on Monday, Milo posted to Telegram kind of a picture of this congressional badge, if you will, clearly showing that, you know, he was an intern. And then, of course, you know, the Daily Beast confirmed it. And uh, Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene herself uh, confirmed that uh, Milo's an intern now uh, in her office. Right. So so this statement here is that she put out is responding to this idea that, you know, Milo is this extremely controversial figure who, among other things, has called for members of Congress to be hanged and has had an unusually laissez-faire attitude towards pedophilia. And so she says, I have an intern that was raped by a priest as a young teen, was gay, has offended everyone at some point, turned his life back to Jesus in church and changed his life. <laughs> great story. <laughs> and so great story. I want to be clear is still in the quote from her. Great story. I, I guess what was your reaction when you got that statement from her office it confirms that he's an intern of course but yeah no it, it was a little bit weird like uh, the, the whole thing because of course she's she's pretty like you know she claims at one point she was pretty cozy with QAnon. <laughs> yeah she i mean she's like a hardcore QAnon believer yeah right and 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 the whole idea of QAnon, will you know you're the expert but long story short it, it, it's that uh, you know there's a group of democratic politicians having kind of sex and and, and there's a big cabal with children right so uh, pedophilia is kind of pretty, you know, you would think that's pretty against her beliefs. And anyone who ever even, you know, was kind of anywhere near aligned with sympathizing for pedophilia would be kind of, you know, a person non grata. But of course, you know, I, I found it pretty weird that she would like openly embrace Milo, uh, especially with some of those hardcore QAnon ties. So, you know, putting aside whatever what Milo's up to here, and I think it's fair to say he's up to getting attention and um, who knows, maybe berating members of Congress. Uh, I guess we'll see how that shakes out. What do you think Marjorie Taylor Greene's game is here? Their office hasn't responded to inquiries about this, but I do think that he's per- behind a new podcast that Marjorie Taylor Greene's kind of putting out. Of course, on Telegram, he's been promoting this podcast that Marjorie Taylor Greene's putting out. And kind of anytime the podcast goes live, he's kind of like, you know, talking about it. So I think he is kind of behind some of the podcasts. You know, and I, I, I do think that originates from kind of Matt Gates and other members of Congress, you know, who have kind of been alienated from places like Fox News, for example, you know, just not mainstream enough to go on Fox News, quite frankly. And, and they've kind of created their own like alternative media right wing ecospheres, if you will. And I think Milo you know, is kind of behind this, this whole thing with... I think you're right on the money. I mean, I think if you watch this Marjorie Taylor Green podcast slash video production, MTG Live, it has my Milovian touches, I think. And, and, mm-hmm. and that was why even before this this was public, it, it sort of aesthetically, you know, as someone who's, a, who's, you know, followed Milo's aesthetic for many years, I had the suspicion that, that he was involved in this. Well, you know, look, I'm sure Milo will be taking on all the duties of a Capitol Hill intern. He'll be leading constituents on tours. Um, he'll be getting dry cleaning and coffee, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I appreciate your reporting on this. I do think this is interesting because this puts him in an interesting spot as a provocateur. Theoretically, I mean, obviously, this gives him access to the halls of Congress. I think, mm-hmm. are we going to see him, you know, yelling at, uh, you know, J- Jamie Raskin at uh, AOC? Uh, certainly, I think his fellow traveler, Laura Loomer, whose whole bid for Congress is premised on the idea that she'll yell at other members of Congress if you elect her. Uh, she must be like, oh, shoot, you know, this guy beat me to it. Oh, I should have been an intern. Uh, so so this is, uh, you know, look, I, I think it's interesting to watch. It's certainly not great for, uh, I think, the, the Congress as an institution. But, you know, it, I, I think it adds another volatile element even even by Marjorie Taylor Greene's standards into her office. And, and one has to wonder, you know, how the rest of the GOP is going to feel about that. I think it's an interesting question, too, for, for Kevin McCarthy to have to answer, too, as well. I will note, though, that this intern kind of maneuver here, if you will, this intern enlisting of, you know, kind of these controversial figures, you know, was kind of first kind of brainstormed by Matt Gates, of course, when he, you know, last year had kind of proposed that Kyle Rittenhouse become an intern. <laughs> This is such a funny tactic. Yeah, like why 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 don't we have Sean Hannity 
as like Lauren Boebert's intern, right? Like, well, it's it's kind of the follow up of the idea we talked about recently, where it's like the Speaker of the House doesn't have to be, you know, a member of Congress. Let's make Mark Levin or someone like that. Let's make Steve Bannon the Speaker of the House. You know, perhaps we now can have these stunt internships. Yeah, it's truly wild. I, I, I do think I'd be very curious to hear the stories of Milo as an intern. Perhaps he'll grab coffee with me one day on Capitol Hill. Great. So, Will, this week we saw news break that the Proud Boys now face another hurdle as January 6th prosecutions push forward and more and more documents in regards to the Capitol riots are kind of shown to the public. Uh, what's new with the Proud Boys? Sure. So this week, the the big news, you know, speaking of Congress, the big news uh, on Thursday is going to be the January 6th committee's first hearing. Is it going to be damning information? Is it going to be a snooze? Even if it is damning information, will anyone care? I think that that all remains to be seen. But the, the big news earlier this week is that we have fresh indictments against top leadership in the Proud Boys, the far-right men's drinking fraternity slash allegedly seditious organization that, you know, played a key role, I, I, I think it's fair to say, in, in, in the brawling uh, of the Capitol riots, whose members did. I was thinking about this when these indictments came down, and, and these indictments were, were published on Monday, and they, they charged people like Proud Boys leader uh, slash sometimes federal informant Enrique, or to his detractors, Federica. <laughs> really? They call him that, Will? They do. They do. Wow. It, it's funny. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the whole January 6th thing has kind of created a lot of disagreements within the Proud Boys. And so there's kind of a lot of, a lot of factions now. But anyways, so Federica has been charged, uh, as has Joe Biggs, who is kind of one of these kind of big brawler guys and one of these um, kind of the, the face of the, the most militaristic elements of the Proud Boys. A guy named Ethan Nordian, a.k.a. Rufio Panman, taking his alias from the uh, 90s movie hook <laughs> wow and a couple other characters so they've been charged with seditious conspiracy which you know is a pretty serious charge here from my perspective but i was thinking about this you know back when i think 2017 i, I wrote my first article about the proud boys that this was an organization known at the time they had a lot of youtube videos they were known for uh, obviously being founded by gavin mcginnis of you know one time of vice magazine they had rules about you know if you joined you had to they would punch you and you had to name five serials uh in a sort of beating in um they, they had a rule since abandoned that you couldn't wear flip-flops you know they had obviously restrictions on how much members could uh could pledge themselves <laughs> in a given month uh and i will say writing about this and i thought oh, pretty weird bunch i never thought they would try to bring down our government <laughs> and that just shows how things could change you know I think some of this information has come out in the past, but I thought it was it was interesting reading the, this indictment because it really shows how the Proud Boys have changed over time. So, you know, let's think about, you know, like I said, I mean, I was talking about back in the day when they would record music videos about how you can't wear flip flops. And then in the aftermath of the election in November 2020, the Proud Boys showed up in D.C. a couple times. They had some brawls with Antifa, and it kind of seems like the Proud Boys came off the worst for wear. Uh, they, one of their members got stabbed. In the aftermath of these sort of initial forays in the lead up to January 6th, uh, the indictment re reveals Joe Biggs, who is this former InfoWars personality who turned into kind of a big Proud Boys burly boy. He's complaining because Gavin McGinnis, when he created the Proud Boys, which, again, are named after a long since forgotten song in the Aladdin musical. He had created them ostensibly as a drinking club. There was there was something of this kind of paramilitary element to it, but but I don't think that was really like front and center. So Biggs is complaining in a message to Enrique Terrio. He's saying basically like you know we quote recruit losers who want to drink. So this was really billed as like the modern day Elks Club. And Biggs is like this stinks. We got a bunch of fat losers. They can't fight. They're getting beaten up by Antifa. And then he says let's get radical and get real men and that's kind of like we go uh-oh uh because they then start this organization within the proud boys called the ministry of defense uh, according to the indictment and they start really recruiting like the most hardcore members of the proud boys uh guys who have gained prominence within the group for their brawls in portland and, and other places with uh, left-wing protesters so these are the guys who kind of make up your hardcore element of the proud boys now on january 6th this group then rallies in front of the capitol they specifically do not wear their proud boys yellow and black the other thing you know this comes up a lot with right-wing personalities is how much they they have to announce their stuff online before they do it. And so Joe Biggs is like, okay, everyone, we're coming incognito. We're not wearing our yellow and black. I mean, 
I knew about that and stuff. And so certainly it seems as though the feds noticed that as well. They show up. Um, I noticed them and they were, you know, and, and I was taking pictures of them, videos, and they were chanting things like time to attack the Capitol. Oh, wow. And people would say, hey, like, <laughs> don't reveal our plan. As it turned out, you know, at least some of those people then did that. The indictment also reveals, I think, some some interesting plotting with Enrique Terrio, uh, who was banned from D.C. at the time of the riot because he was picked up on a weapons charge. He, he's saying, you know, a- after the riot, he's texting with another member who I believe himself had been stabbed uh, and so was also sitting out the riot. And so he's saying, you know, dude. Did we just influence history? And Terrio, who I think is a little smarter, there's a reason he, he runs the gang, uh, he says, let's first see how this plays out. And then the stabbed guy says, they have to certify today or it's invalid. The implication being that, you know, I guess there's not going to be a president anymore or something hmm. uh, because the, the boys had successfully uh, delayed the certification of the results. So, Zach, what are your thoughts here? Wow. That seems uh, like pretty good proof uh, for alleged sedition, if you will. So where do you think this all leads, Will? Do you think that there is potential outcome here at all? Do you think there's more to be released? Yes. Yeah, so, so I think one interesting thing that's happening here is that there's a, a, a high-ranking proud boy who is cooperating with the feds, a guy named Charles Donahue. And so the people who are indicted in this are kind of the, for folks who have followed January 6th at all, like the these cases, these are kind of like your marquee proud boys. So like I said, you've got Rufio Panman, you've got Federica. You've- I love, Will, how you know them all by their nicknames, too. It's a nice touch. <laughs> right, they're, they're nom de guerres, yeah. I mean, it is, it, it's a weird scene. And, you know, I mean, in many ways, I think looking back on it, you know, if you look at like the summer of 2020, 2019, when every summer a couple Proud Boys would emerge from their local Proud Boy scenes for their fighting prowess. And then you look back on it and say, hmm, I wonder if this this system is promoting violence. You know, they have a, a degree, the, the fourth degree membership in the Proud Boys is for getting arrested for committing violence in the name of the club, although they they'll later change that to self-defense, you know, wink, wink. In a way, this sort of funneled them all towards January 6th in a way that they sort of, they selected then the most violent members. I can't really speak to the legal case about it uh it certainly seems like based on the indictments that they have a ton of evidence on it but and especially now that you have this donahue guy who who is cooperating with the feds i would say it's not looking good for the proud boys leadership i mean once you start talking about sedition you're talking about like serious heavy years and years and years of punishment in prison so i think this is kind of a an amuse bouche ahead of the uh the january 6th committee uh any revelations that come out of that on thursday this is the special congressional episode. We're talking a lot about Congress this week. Zach, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House apparent, uh, should Republicans win back the House in the midterms, but he's getting roasted by Trump supporters. What's going on? House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy kind of in charge of all the craziness that happens over on the House side when it comes to Republicans and trying to keep people in line now has problems, you know, for himself. Of course, he's been wanting the endorsement of Trump. I think everyone in the Republican Party, to a certain extent, more or less wants Trump's backing as it helps them get through kind of primaries in which they might be outflanked to the right. And of course, this is no different for Leader Kevin McCarthy, who in California, as of yesterday, when this podcast episode airs, will have, you know, completed his primary race in California. And he wanted the endorsement of Trump because at the end of the day, many of, you know, his own voters are, are pretty hardcore Trump supporters. And he wants to appeal to that side of the party. But now, after his weekend endorsement from Trump put out on Truth Social, you know, he now faces backlash, as we reported over at The Daily Beast. He got the Truth Social truth of approval. Yeah, over on Truth, of course, we had one supporter, and 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 Will. I went through all these truther truthers, or I guess what do you call them? They they send out what truths and they retruth. It is kind of funny to call members of Truth Social truthers because I mean because <laughs> it's certainly true, right? I mean, yeah. it, it's an yeah. accurate description. Yeah, but the, the the these guys in the truth. I don't know what you call the comment. Do you call it a comment section on truth? I don't know. The truth zone. The truth zone. I love it. So these these Trump supporters were kind of in Trump's mentions and were just blowing Trump up. I mean, like one guy wrote, what the heck? All upset. And his bio stated that he's going to vote for Trump a quote unquote third time. Another guy wrote, you know, another person with like a gun as a profile picture wrote, the guy referring to McCarthy talks behind your back. Yuck. So, I mean, of course, many of Trump's own supporters were pretty upset. And of course, you had kind of more of the MAGA hardcore base, people like Laura Loomer, as we spoke about earlier. You know, she wrote something along the line of he isn't even loyal to the Trump base. Really upset. Right. Roger Stone, of course, a a longtime kind of like informal 
confidant of Trump wrote that, you know, he thinks that McCarthy should be impeached um, and kind of like tossed out of the house. And he's not, you know, pro-Trump enough. Of course, we had Fox News contributor Leo Terrell, right? Kevin McCarthy does not want President Trump to win re-election in 2024, right? So, so what's what's going on here? Why are these guys so mad at Kevin McCarthy? They see Kevin McCarthy as kind of a squish, right? So kind of a, a, a rhino, of course, as we talked about last week on, on, on the pod, kind of a rhino who isn't Trumpian enough. And especially after the New York Times leaked those audio tapes of, of Kevin McCarthy kind of mulling the idea of trying to push Trump to resign after January 6th, a lot of his most hardcore supporters, of course, view January 6th, you know, in a very different way than I think many folks perhaps on Capitol Hill do as, as kind of this attack on democracy. Many of, you know, Trump's own supporters and, and, and McCarthy's own supporters that have turned on him don't see it that way. So, so I do think there's kind of this growing faction where Trump supporters are kind of turning on McCarthy more and more, you see like this burgeoning gap. Of course, there was a right-wing writer on Twitter that, you know, kind of tied Kevin McCarthy to his quote-unquote bunk buddy, Frank Luntz, right? So they see McCarthy as this establishment character. Correct me if I'm wrong, but McCarthy rents an apartment from Luntz, is that right? correct? Yeah, yeah. So they've kind of been longtime friends that seemingly have not only been friends, but also been kind of like professional co-workers to a certain extent. Their minglings are very much intertwined when it comes to work. I know, of course, on January 6th, Frank Luntz was, you know, kind of tweeting from Kevin McCarthy's limousine. So so they, they, they have this very entangled... <laughs> that's that's the true, true bro lifestyle there. Like, yeah. Okay. They, they have a very entangled relationship. Um, he, you know, of course, McCarthy claims after kind of like Tucker Carlson kind of ripped into him that, you know, he was only like renting and, and the renting, you know, stopped at one point. But they've always been like kind of really, really close friends. I know, you know, some of my uh, reporting where I used to work at Salon.com, you know, we had tied Kevin McCarthy to, um, you know, he appeared, um, you know, for clients of Lunt at like focus groups. And it was just they had a very, very close relationship okay so, so they have all these connections these guys don't like frank luntz because he he's not you know as crazy pro-trump as they would like um so you know it is interesting these hardcore grassroots types they uh, maybe it is the nature of of congressional leadership uh on the right but they always hate the the guys who are you know steering the ship right or, or you know at least I, I i think they have as long as i can remember i mean these guys they despise mitch mcconnell even though he's the guy who gets everything done for them mm-hmm. you know they, they hate kevin mccarthy although I mean, I, I think he's a little less effective than Mitch McConnell. So let's say they win back the House, as it certainly appears to will happen. I mean, is Kevin McCarthy going to be, you, you know, is he is he going to be out? Is is he not going to going to take the Speaker's gavel? You know, I, I still think he does take the Speaker's gavel. I think he has a lot of power, kind of among these these Washington D.C. corridor insiders that really do control parts of the Republican Party. Still, um, I know that you know people within kind of McCarthy land don't view you know the the idea of Trump being put up as Speaker as a real threat. But you know, th- there is still a lot of you know energy there from the MAGA base saying, "Look, we this needs to be done. We need." somebody more hardcore we need somebody who will just start millions of investigations kind of on democrats who would these guys who would who would they like to see become speaker well i i think they would love to you know trump become speaker is kind of their number one right now i think they could put up anyone <laughs> I do like though. i, I know I it's think, like hey we love trump you know yeah, yeah <laughs> but of the but, guy yeah I will note there are also members of congress pushing this right of course matt gates you know had suggested that Jim Jordan should be put up for speaker and, and he said he's a real hard worker, right? So there are calls from within the house, no pun intended, too, for a new speaker who's more hardcore. And you could see someone from the Freedom Caucus kind of give Kevin McCarthy a run for his money. Make a play for it. I feel like these bids to like oust the main guy, you, you know, I feel like it never really comes to fruition, but maybe it will this time. It's certainly interesting to watch. I think should Republicans win back control of the midterms, and particularly if if uh, a Republican wins back the White House in 2024, I think we're headed for, you know, the... I think it's sort of easy to stay united when you're out of power, uh, and, and and I think what you're what you're pointing out here with the Kevin McCarthy stuff is, I think that there is kind of a new era of of much more wide open factionalism on the right that awaits us. Absolutely, and you also see these folks kind of turn up on, on the right here that might be in it for a headline or two, but at the same time, I, I do think that people like 
for example, Matt Gates really do want to see a new speaker in there. And we could potentially find this kind of among those ranks. Interesting stuff, Zach, as always. This week on Fever Dreams, we are joined by who, Will? <laughs> we are joined by documentary filmmaker Brian Knappenberger. Uh, this is a guy who's made documentaries. Uh, a lot of his documentaries are kind of about the the internet and unsavory or, or noble characters, uh, like internet activist Aaron Schwartz and uh, the hackers behind Anonymous. And now he has the new Netflix docuseries, Web of Make-Believe, with the great subtitle, Death Lies in the Internet. This is, you know, it focuses on lots of unsavory characters, including myself. And <laughs> Fever Dreams podcast temporarily departed uh, co-host Kelly Weil. So Kelly and I are both in the episode about the Seth Rich conspiracy theories. Wow. But, you know, I, I was watching uh, some screeners for this. It comes out on June 15th on Netflix. And he's got everything from online white supremacists to uh, people who swat their online gaming rivals. So, I, you know, I think that Kelly did a great job in it. I kind of pop up a couple times as well. Brian has been studying these issues with the Internet and uh, and what it's doing to our brains. And I think he's got a lot of great stories about it. So uh, I think it should be a good interview. Sounds like I might have to buy a Netflix account. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. Okay, today on Fever Dreams, we're joined by Brian Knappenberger. He's a documentary filmmaker. His latest docuseries is called Web of Make-Believe, Death Lies in the Internet. Uh, It's coming out on June 15th on Netflix, and uh, I'm in one of the episodes about the Seth Rich conspiracy theory, along with our other Fever Dreams co-host, Kelly Weil. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for being in the series, too. Your interview was great. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I was happy to do it. Uh, you know, and, and uh, I just watched the episode last night. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I thought it was great how it turned out. So, Brian, you know, you're covering a lot of ground in this series. It, it covers everything from swatting, which is, you know, having people go to your enemies' houses or, or, or tricking the, the police into sending a SWAT team to someone's house, to, you know, various kind of uh, internet blackmail sex crimes, to the Seth Rich conspiracy theory. What do you think all these things have in common, and, and, and how did you get onto this theme? Well, the premise is that we, we you know, we live in this world of chaotic disinformation, uh, make-believe, where we don't quite understand, you know, what's real and what isn't. And that stuff kind of plays out in all sorts of different ways and reverberates through our society in all sorts of different ways and has these sort of direct effects on, on, on people. So rather than kind of, you know, hitting those, each of those subjects directly or doing it in a kind of academic way, we're really looking at it through, you know, characters basically and, and people and stories and sort of, you know, the way that, that kind of chaotic misinformation or technological networks and and other sorts of things in our lives have real world reverberations. I mean, it's certainly not something I, I try to do in my reporting as well. I mean, I think it really resonates with people when you take it out of the drama around an online game, perhaps as in the swatting episode or or the sort of the entrails of 4chan as in the Seth Rich case. I mean, it, you know, in one of these, literally, I mean, it, you know, it's the internet reaching out and sending a SWAT team to your door. So how did you get, I mean, you know, obviously, it, I think the biggest one here for us on Fever Dreams is the Seth Rich case. You know, this is the case of the uh, this Democratic National Committee staffer who's murdered, and then um, basically the, the right seizes on this murder, which appears to be a botched robbery, to turn it into this idea that Hillary Clinton had him murdered, or to cover up the the Russian hack of Democratic emails. How did you get interested in that case? And uh, you know, I mean, you really got lots of access to, I, I think, really many of the main players. Tell me about that. Well, it's such a fascinating 
case. I mean, it really is. And, and, and you know this because I think you were following it right from its early days, you know, when it kind of first hit in the news and, and when it was kind of starting to show up on Reddit and things like that. You know, the, it, it just, this story is this sort of, I mean, it's just a, such a fascinating kind of mix of things that sort of preyed on that moment so, so kind of perfectly. I mean, it was for almost kind of purely political reasons, these sort of, you know, sideline operatives really wanted this story to be true. You know, it was, it was too good. It was too sort of convenient. So kind of in line with their own motives. And it seemed to kind of offer this promise of power for them uh, or access. And so it was this, just this really interesting mix of elements that, you know, took advantage of a kind of social media environment already primed for these sorts of things, this sort of conspiracy. And in this kind of already fact check free environment that was leading up to the election, you know, just diving into this, the way that this story unfolded, the way people kind of used it was really, really fascinating. And of course, at the heart of it is a family that's just trying to figure out what happened to their son and trying to get actual real information about about their son who was murdered. So there's just so many elements of it that were so compelling that it was just kind of central to kind of what we want to do with the series. So you met Jack Berkman, I imagine, in your travels, yeah. I guess, through this whole ordeal. And I guess my, my first kind of more lighthearted question is, did you meet Jackie Jr.? And then, and then more broadly, what, what was it that you kind of picked up and, 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 and kind of really, you know, you kind of learned through it all with, with Jack and his role in this whole thing? Yeah, I mean, Jack Berkman, we, we you know, we did not meet Jackie Jr. Uh, or okay. the baby, the baby, as he calls it. <laughs> this would be his pet dachshund. Yes. His pet dachshund. The baby, Jackie Jr. Yeah, right. That Milo threatened to kill, of course, just for a little more context. <laughs> right. There's a lot of uh, layers. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of very subtle layers to this, yes. But no, in the, in the piece, we, you know, we, we met with Jack Berkman. I asked him a bunch of questions, and, and we, of course, did hear about this, about what happened. He had uh, been kind of conversing with this, uh, what he thought was a source online. I didn't know who, know who it was, um, but it turned out to be a kind of, you know, a relationship that had gone bad with a, a researcher that he had been working with. And when he went to, um, to, go, to go pick up some of these documents that presumably this person was leaving the secret documents, there's this shootout and he goes through the whole thing and just the whole kind of beat by play by play about how, you know, he had to kind of... Um, you know, escape this gunfire and and uh, and a bullet hit Jackie Jr. in the paw. He had to throw the baby down. Had to save the baby. Sounds true. He, he just kind of barely lived through this attempt to kill him. It's always interesting to me when these sort of conspiracy theories and these people who really hype themselves up as as kind of like operators then suddenly collide with you know often with one another in a real crime way. I've done work on like a like QAnon kidnappers for example. The Jack Berkman one is funny because I mean this is a guy who really inserted himself into the Seth Rich case from the beginning seeming like a somewhat quasi respectable figure initially and then sort of just got kind of crazier and crazier. Yeah. I believe maybe it was Zach when Zach first talked to him once or someone else. And they said to me, they said, Andy said he was shot. They just assume it's a lie like everything else he says. But, you know, in this case, as you get into in the docuseries, it, it, it's all too real. Yeah, it really is fascinating. He had shot in the butt twice, I think. Yes, uh, we, yes. we shouldn't laugh about that, but it, there is something very, I mean, you know, when Berkman first comes in, you, you know, we play some of those early press conferences. You know, he says, he basically says there exists no theory of the case. Right. And a reporter yells out, well, what about what about a robbery? And he just kind of dismisses this. And, you know, it's pretty clear early on that this was, you know, this was a theory that they had. This was a, a juicy story that was in desperate search for for some sort of proof. Right. And so really, for those reasons, it was just too good. It was too it was too good not to keep kind of pursuing it. So any detail, no matter how insignificant, was treated as gold as long as it was you know, some sort of breadcrumb along the way to giving the story more credibility. And, uh, you know, it's just interesting in, you know, one of the overall effects, I think, of making a documentary like this, you know, stringing it out detail by detail, is just how flimsy each turn and each argument is uh, when you kind of drag it out into the cold light of day. You know, it's like you know, stepping stones in a river or something that crumble and, you know, disappear after you step on them. Um, I mean, you look back, there's so little of, of real subs. I mean, I'm actually curious what Will thinks, but 
you know, when you, when you really kind of string it out in this way, it's kind of like there's not many anything solid that you can grab onto uh, at, at any point. Yeah, I mean, you know, I really had started the, um, you know, as you mentioned, you know, I, I started covering the Seth Rich stuff back in 2016 and w- when it was sort of just a another sort of tragic local murder. And I guess I gave the hucksters involved with it maybe a lot more credibility for a lot longer than they deserved. I mean, I remember, I'm sure you've had this experience with Jack Berkman. I mean, this this guy's a lobbyist, so he's kind of a smooth operator or aspires to be, and, you know, is always very, <laughs> wow, what a, what a great question. You're a really great, you know, enterprising young reporter and all this. And then you talk to every other reporter who talks to him, and, you know, he, he said the same to them. You know, I was like, well, maybe this guy's onto something. Maybe, you know, he seems at least earnest, if a little odd. Um, and then, you know, cut to a year later, he has a, a press conference where he says, well, we're going to have the we have a dea whistleblower who said he he ran a hit a hit team you know and all this and and you know all these conspiracy theorists show up along with me at this holiday inn where he ran his operations and you know i i just suddenly oh the whistleblower is not coming out he's scared he's he's on a, a video he, he's gonna conference call in and even people who are working for like jerome corsi all these conspiracy theorists they're saying boo like this stinks, <laughs> you know um and, and so actually you know on that note this story i, I imagine brian this also interested you because I mean, it draws in so many, I think, kind of flavors of right-wing operator in our modern yeah. media environment. You know, it, and the, the one who I think becomes a, a huge player in it is Ed Batowski, who then brings in Fox News. You know, talk to me about how that kind of collision between Batowski and Fox creates, it sort of takes the Seth Rich story to the next level. It takes it from Reddit accounts and people on 4chan and maybe some people on Twitter into really a, a sort of massive story. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's right. There's a couple of figures like that. Butowski, first it's Assange, really, right? I mean, Assange kind of gives this aura of, of credibility to it. Um, you know, Cy Hirsch is in the mix, too. Yeah, but it gets to Butowski. He is on Fox News is, is definitely a kind of solid mainstream kind of uh, venue for this. Um, by the time it gets there, it's really being taken seriously by a lot of people. And, and he's He's such a fascinating figure. We, t- we tried to interview him, by the way. We had a very weird Zoom conversation with him early, early on, and we thought he was going to talk to us. So much so that we actually flew down to Plano, Texas. We set up an interview, a whole big crew and everything, and lit, lit it and everything else. And instead of um, Ed Butowski walking in the door, Ty Clevenger, his lawyer, walks in the door and sits in, in the interview. And so we actually really wanted to kind of get Butowski's perspective in this. We had to kind of uh, use Ty as, we decided to interview Ty and use him as a kind of stand-in and try to understand where where Butowski was coming from. And so to set it up for people, I mean, Ed Butowski is this kind of occasional Fox News guest who then pays for this uh, private investigator who has his own kind of self-aggrandizement, self-aggrandizing reasons to get involved. And then ultimately this gets spun up on Sean Hannity as like this this big FBI investigation into whether Seth Rich was involved in WikiLeaks and, and whether he was murdered for this reason. I mean, at the center of this is, however, is Seth Rich's grieving family. I think your your series really kind of keeps going back to these human characters. And, you know, on, on one hand, I mean, there's all these, there's kind of this like huge hubbub around, you know, uh, whether it's Jack Berkman getting shot by a rival Seth Rich investigator or, you know, uh, Ed Butowski having a fallout, falling out with his private investigator. I mean, as all this is happening, what is this doing to Seth Rich's parents? Oh, I think, I mean, I think you just nailed, it's exactly what we were trying to, trying to kind of point out. I mean, a, as this theory kind of spins out in all of these different ways with all of these different figures for all of these kind of each with their own motive you know there's a family at the heart of it their son was murdered and they're trying to figure out what happened trying to get real information in this world of chaotic misinformation and spin and it's really tragic because every time you every time you sort of you know, cut back to them you, you you know it's a it's a it's a portrait of a family who's trying to grieve and trying to follow every lead they can as any family would but time is ticking away and and they're getting farther and farther away from an actual real answer about what happened to their son so yeah it's it, it has this this absurdist kind of chronology in terms of when you follow the the information or the story kind of conspiratorial part of the story when you go back to this this grieving family uh, you really realize the the kind of real real world reverberation of what was of what they were doing and what was what was happening what was actually happening here ed was of course on fox news what role did you see you know fox kind of having in this whole thing and even more so have you seen them pull back 
you know, they moved to dismiss lawsuits and settle on much of this. Do you think that they've kind of paid the right price for pumping this kind of into the mainstream? It's hard to say they've paid the, the right price. They made a settlement with the riches. We don't know 100%. I don't know if that's 100% public what that is, but they also made a deal right before some of their biggest stars were about to testify in this case. They made, they, they struck a deal. And they also struck a deal to have the have the settlement kind of delayed, I believe, until after uh, the election, the last election. So it was all kind of very secretive. I don't think it got a lot of publicity necessarily. There was a there was a payout for the riches, but yeah, no, I don't think there's been a, a kind of reckoning, you know, for the for the for the mainstream big megaphone that Fox has for for the kind of misinformation that they pumped out there. And in terms of remorse from people like Jack Berkman and your adventures, did you kind of see any remorse there or was it more more of the same? No, I don't see any remorse uh, from them. I don't get any sense of that. From Ed Butowski and Ty Clevenger, I mean, it's kind of an interesting, I mean, they, they still are, I think, very much focused on this idea of Seth's laptop. You know, I mean, so this is this is the, you know, when the FBI is investigating Seth's murder, they, they get the laptop and, you know, as they do in these sorts of things, they make an exact replica of this. So... And that has not been made public, the contents of that laptop. So, you know, their position really still is that there could be information on that laptop that shows that Seth was in contact with WikiLeaks or had something to do with the DNC hack. They think there's maybe something on there that that explains this and that Seth Rich had something to do with the leaks. And, of course, that would then open the door to the second part of the story that somehow his murder was related to his stealing and then supposedly leaking the emails. But I mean, you know, that seems pretty far fetched. I think, I mean, you guys are reporters. I'm, I'm sure Will has um, uh, filed his fair share of FOIA requests. I mean, it's the, the secrecy by itself or the, the lack of transparency on the laptop is not by itself any proof of anything, obviously. They make a lot out of this, but as for someone who's filed a lot of FOIA requests, that kind of secrecy is basically called Tuesday. That's what they still, I think, believe. I, I think it's fair to say that they think there may be something on that laptop that proves this story still. So, you know, it's interesting you bring up uh, open records. Uh, Brian, I first became aware that you were working on this series because I saw your filings in a lawsuit uh, Seth Rich's brother had filed against Ed Batowski and the, the lawsuit had been settled and you were hoping that, that we could get some more of the records. And, you know, this kind of dovetails with my personal belief, which is that every courtroom, at least one of interest, where the, when they, they, there should be like a third lawyer representing the public and the media who's saying like, yeah. Come on, Your Honor. You know, open it up. Come on, we want to see it. <laughs> Definitely. As you wrap up, as you wrapped up this episode about Seth Rich, I mean, what were your unanswered questions? You know, what, what was still out there for you about how this conspiracy theory was manufactured? What, what, what do you wish you could have found out? Well, there's still a lot to be understood about some of Butowski's involvement and what they did is still interesting to me. Um, you know, I I was curious about. Um, I tried to talk to Cy Hirsch, by the way, about about. We play the kind of surreptitiously recorded version of what, you know, Cy trying to kind of get information out of Ed Butowski. We play that in the in the piece. I wanted to sort of hear more from Cy. You know, the real answer to like what what happened here is, you know, it would be nice to know more about about the details of what happened to, to Seth, you know, to we don't have any of that information. And unfortunately, I think that's just just the nature of this, that we don't we don't actually have concrete information about what happened to him. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I was really closely watching uh, your court motions. I, I was hoping, you know, we were going to get all kinds of files out. We tried. We got turned down, unfortunately. Yeah. I know you get, you gave it your best shot. We have these other episodes uh, in the series. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, there's one about swatting. What's that case? I mean, that was, that's one that I, I was watching as well, where you have this, uh, this young man who becomes kind of a professional swatter. You know, if you could tell us about that and, and, and what, in, you know, I, I, obviously I think the Seth Rich case illustrates something about how the internet works in our real lives now and what does the swatting case tell us it's such a fascinating case to me because this is this is the first time you know that we that we really know of that swatting actually caused a, a death a real life death it was something that um, investigators and you know police and people that were watching it had suspected might happen at some point but i was just really curious to, to see how this had, had gone down so we, we actually reached out we, we managed to talk to Tyler Barris, the person you just mentioned, who had sort of become this notorious uh, swatter, and I did a, I did an interview with him just in prison, just a recorded interview. That's kind of where it came from. We worked with another reporter, uh, Brendan Conner, 
as well on this. But it is an absolutely fascinating kind of phenomenon that, that has been enabled by the internet, by the anonymity of, of some online platforms. So I just thought that story was really, really fascinating, the way that it kind of amplified, you know, it's it's this, um, should I tell a little bit about what the story is? It's um, Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. So basically it starts with this online, it's, you know, people playing um, two figures, uh, playing uh, call, call of Duty online, and there's a there's a dispute happens. One of them kills the other one in the game, and they're on the same team. It's a friendly fire incident, and this escalates to some ridiculous level. They had sacrificed a dollar fifty bet, so they had put a dollar fifty down wager down on this game, and because of this, they had lost this because of this friendly fire incident in the game. They had lost the bet, and so this becomes you know, this kind of back and forth when you look at the text messages that eventually one of those players calls this notorious swatter, Tyler Barris. And Tyler, um, who goes uh, under the handle, Twitter handle, Swatistic, I guess he kind of, he makes money swats for people. People would pay him, you know, 20 or $50 in order to to SWAT somebody, to call in a SWAT team on somebody's house. And he had kind of perfected these little scripts on how to do that. And I don't think he's making a lot of money. I think he also really kind of loved the notoriety that it brought him. And so he calls in this um, SWAT team to this house in Wichita, Kansas, that was almost in a taunting way given by one of the game players in the Call of Duty game. And he calls in the SWAT team. The SWAT team comes to the house and one of the figures, this, this man, Andrew Finch, comes out of the house. The story is that he Andrew makes some sort of a motion to his belt or tries to pull up a, a, his pants or something. And one of the SWAT team members sees this as threatening and shoots him and kills him. And it turns out that this was a fake address that was given to Tyler Barris and the people, Andrew Finch and the Finnish family and everybody that was inside the house at the time really had no clue what was what was going on or why they were being surrounded by SWAT members. So we unpack this whole thing and what that means. Um, it also becomes a kind of uh, story about uh, pol- you know police overreaction and, and incompetence in some ways because they are unable to kind of de-escalate this situation or understand what what's what's happening. And the information the police were given is a lot different than what they encountered when they got to the house. So we kind of unpack each of these things and again, find, you know, f- find ourselves, you know, looking at the, the Finch family, which is, which is experienced the kind of uh, effects of this, all of these actions that have started with an online game. Well, it's a very interesting series and, and a sobering one. And it really showed me a lot of aspects of, of the internet in our lives, I, I think, that I hadn't considered. Uh, a lot of interesting cases. Again, that's Brian Knappenberger. His new Netflix series coming out June 15th is called Web of Make Believe Death Lies in the Internet. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Brian, thanks for coming by. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Welcome to this week's episode of Fresh Hell, where we unpack the weird and the wild on the internet and what you're going to see potentially your uncle talk about in three months. Absolutely, Zach. Thank you. So this week on Fresh Hell, I've got a story uh, I recently wrote for the Daily Beast about the world of true crime podcasting. Now, I say, I, I will say this. I spend my life dealing with some in the, the right-wing demimonde, right? And I encounter some interesting characters, some people folks might not want to spend time with uh, outside of work. That said... My recent foray into the world of true crime made me long for the days of QAnon and the Proud Boys, because this is a weird community indeed. I think a lot of people, maybe, I guess from my perspective, I I thought of true crime podcasting as like serial, right? But then in terms of gloss and prestige, this goes down a little bit to like something I I, I might listen to where like the guy who wrote Bosch does a true crime podcast. And then way, way, way down is what I had to deal with last week. So there's a popular true crime podcast called The Prosecutors, and this stars two anonymous pro- prosecutors named Brett and Alice who you know they they use their their wisdom as true crime prosecutors to explain popular cases like the uh, the Jean Benet Ramsey murder for example so these guys have been at it since 2020 and they become really popular among what crowd among true crime fans ow oh, i missed it like i said i mean this is kind of a world you and i i think don't have a ton of interaction with but but i mean true crime podcasting is is enormous these guys are roughly the 100th most popular true crime podcast, uh, which 
I, I'm assured by podcast experts, is actually like a hugely popular to, to have that rank. So my article is about fans of this podcast who started wondering, well, who are Brett and Alice? You know, they, they talk a lot about their legal experience and being podcasters, but they don't reveal their names. They don't reveal their faces. And when they started Googling them, they'd start, they discovered that Brett and Alice are, in fact, Brett Talley and Alice LaCour, who are very high-ranking members of the Republican uh, – perhaps I shouldn't say high – well, I guess they – one of them was nominated to be a federal judge. So, so they are they are very well placed members of the Republican legal elite. You know the the Federalist Society folks devoted to overturning abortion rights and expanding gun access, all that kind of stuff. Uh, in the case of Brett Talley in particular, these listeners discovered this guy is a sort of uh, he he was a failed Trump judicial nominee who was so unqualified, according to the American Bar Association, that he caused sort of a uh, a mini-scandal in the early days of the Trump administration because people couldn't believe how unqualified he was. At the time, he had not tried a case in court. Uh, even Republican senators called his nomination an embarrassment. And so essentially my story is about how he and, and Alice LaCour, who is a, uh, herself a federal prosecutor, uh, who is married to the Alabama Solicitor General, who's also a, a big-time Federalist Society guy, how they sort of, for legitimate reasons or not, they, they mask their identities and kind of blend into the world of true crime podcasting, where they, they were embraced by a lot of people who thought of themselves as liberals, and then were very disappointed when they, they looked up uh, you know, these people they had developed these parasocial relationships with, discovered that, you know, among other things... Brett had been writing, uh, you know, defending the the first iteration of the Ku Klux Klan is maybe not so bad as the later ones. I mean, he, he just had this wealth of online comments that came up during his judicial nomination. I, I thought it was just fascinating to see how the this guy was sort of able to reinvent himself as a true crime podcaster. Is the true crime crowd, you know, praising you like the king you are? Or are they pretty upset about the whole thing? <laughs> You know, it's interesting. I mean, there is kind of a, a thriving community of angry fans of the prosecutors who have since... I mean, I, I initially found out about this story because we got a tip from someone who had been a fan of this podcast, uh, uh, of the, the prosecutor's podcast, and had sort of turned on them as a result after finding out their identities. You know, I, I thought it was an interesting story about, you know... It, the first of all, there were a lot of sides. I would say that these folks were pretty conservative to begin with. Uh, number one, they are prosecutors. Number two, when they opened their podcast, they had they had a couple rules of like how they would run the podcast and to avoid too much speculation. And one of them was most of the time, police are honest and telling the truth. And and so so there were kind <laughs> wow. of some, some hints that uh, that maybe these were not uh, members of the DSA. <laughs> you know, nevertheless, it, you know, I, I, I talked to a woman who is a sort of retired homemaker in Baltimore who gets into true who got into true crime listening to these podcasts. As I think people often do, they develop parasocial relationships. Uh, you know, they sort of think of these people as your friends or your you, you know you enjoy the banter between them she'd really come to you, you know to appreciate their takes on these crimes uh and then when she discovered this stuff she felt very uh felt very betrayed i mean the the one a lot of the these listeners these disaffected listeners cite uh is this one after sandy hook when he he, this Brett guy was like, you know, now more than ever, you need to join the NRA. The NRA is defending all our rights. And and she really felt that kind of in her core, very disgusted by that. So, you know, I, 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 I thought it was an interesting story about the collision between, you know, what people come to, what maybe they project onto podcast hosts that they like, and then that reality kind of being shaken. So as, you know, as we come to close this episode, you know, I, I would just like to say, you know, number one, the true, the Fever Dreams podcast guarantee, I am not a failed Trump judicial nominee in disguise. <laughs> you sure will. <laughs> We're coming to the end of our, our guest hosting run here with Zach. So Zach, you know, I just want to thank you for joining us on the pod. Hey, thank you. Yeah, feel free to follow my work, of course, at The Daily Beast and uh, over on SiriusXM and uh, on Twitter at uh, ZTPatrizza. Okay. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.